0: Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt
1: Watson. Hello and welcome to Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with my co-host, Matt Watson. How are you doing today, Matt?
0: Doing pretty good. What are we hustling today?
1: Well, we're going to start a five part series about how to start a startup. Startups are a lot of work. They are. That's why I look so tired. So it's a five part plan? Yeah. We're going to, you know, some of the stuff we've already talked about. And ever since the podcast came out, I've had people asking me for more details on some of the stuff that we've hit on. And I think that I'd like to get into that. I think that. You and I have some interesting stories to tell and I'd like to start today by talking about the things that you need to know before you start the next big thing. How do you feel about that? I think there's a whole lot
0: of things you need to know. I think it all depends on the type of startup, but there are definitely a lot of things to know.
1: Now with that, and also in this five-part series, I'd like to talk about some other things. I'd like to talk about also talk about how to plan your startup, how to implement your plan, dealing with growth and scalability, and should things work out and you make it down the road, how to determine what your startup's worth and what you should be doing with it. I think those are all pretty good things to consider before you get started, don't you? I think they require a little a little thought before you get into it.
0: Um, I don't think most people understand how hard it is to get started. And I think the first thing we can help them with is some good things they need to know before they get started. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes the best decisions to not even start at all. So you, so you, you mentioned to me uh, earlier today a great story about a guy who read your book Million Dollar Bedroom and gave you some great feedback on that. I think maybe that's one of the first things we should talk about. Okay, you sure. Want to tell
1: that story, right? So Million Dollar Bedroom is my story, and I guess I should say thanks for being a part of that. Actually, because you know Matt Watson was interviewed in the whole, you know about the whole process of what he went through selling his first company for 150 million bucks. And with that, you know, when the book came out in June of 2017, it actually uh, did well. And I got some really interesting feedback and interaction from people. And I had one guy that, you know, I did a a book giveaway on Amazon, and one of the guys that won a copy of Million Dollar Bedroom found me on Facebook, and he sent me a message. He says, hey, Matt, I wanted to just send you a note and say thanks for your book. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I really enjoyed it. I felt like I was talking to an old friend, and I just really wanted to say I thought it was a great book, and thanks for writing it. So I replied, I said, well, thank you for taking time to find me and say kind things. Hopefully the book helps you in your current or future business. And he replied by saying, well, I I don't own a business and I'm never going to. At first I was a little confused and I I said, "Well, well, what do you mean? He said, well, after reading your book, I realized owning a business just isn't for me. And I think you saved me a lot of money. I said, "Wow, I I really appreciate that." Now I'm really glad you got something out of it, and thanks for the support. And I thought that was pretty cool. I sent him a copy of my other book, Balance Me, just because I I really appreciated him reaching out. But the point is, is is you know, this guy had read the book and he realized, "Oh my God!" Like, look at all this stuff that this guy went through on the path to success, and you know, all the money, all the all the hassles all the stress and anxiety and different stuff like that and maybe this just isn't for me.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's a great point. I mean, our goal is not to scare people away. You know, if anything we want to we want to help people and we want to help motivate people and teach them some things that that they can use to to be successful, but
1: sometimes for some people that is just letting them know that this just isn't for them. Do you think that you do that by just simply documenting and telling people about all the things you were successful at well or all the things we did wrong i think that's more important than the things we did right in a lot of ways i think it's a combination of those things yeah so you know with that the I, i look back at my own path and even my current path and you know until you do something you can't really you know Determine whether you were doing it right or wrong. And what I failed at, you might not fail at, or what I failed at might not even be applicable to what you're doing. So, I always say that about having
0: kids. There's so many things about having kids you'll never
1: understand until you live through it. Right. And it's kind of like not having kids and me giving you advice about kids. Yeah. Well, I do have a couple of kids, but I'm not going to give you advice about parenting because... I, I'm going to wait and see how mine come out before. <laughs> so so that startup experiment is still ongoing. So when it comes to a startup, you've obviously, you know, and, and when we talk about stuff, we're generally talking about things like software as a service. That's what your company Stackify does. That's what Gigabook does. But there's a lot of other things to consider. And we're going to get into some of that a little later in this series. I think from the most foundational elements we have to talk about a few things. I think the first one that really heavily needs to be considered is time and resources. How do you feel about those? Well, depending on
0: your type of business that you are creating, uh, I think people have to really be realistic about the amount of time it takes to start the business, create the product, um, figure out what your go-to-market strategy is, sell the product, and get those first customers. And especially if it's a software business. I don't I don't think people can really truly understand at all how long that can take. I mean it it took uh with Stackfight two or three years of having multiple employees to build a product that we could then eventually sell one day, right? It's not like a franchise that was kind of turnkey and you just were up and running. I mean it it, it can be a long road. And people have to understand that and be prepared for it. Well, why does it take so long, Matt? Well, cuz building software is complicated shit right? It's hard. Um, I've been writing software for 15 years. It's still hard. And especially if you don't know a lot about writing software, or you're not a, a technical person. It's even harder to find somebody to help do that. And granted, every software product is different. Ideally, you want to pick something that is a, a simple product that you can build a, um, a simple thing and go sell it and get some traction and continue to improve. You don't want to build some big, complicated, hairy thing right out of the gate and then go try and figure out if somebody wants to buy it. And that probably brings up the first topic we should really talk about. Um, related to that is validation. Right? Sure. You know, we had uh, Laura from VideoFizz on a previous episode, and she she told a great story about how she had wasted, well, not wasted, invested, you know, a couple hundred, $250,000 of her own money, and figured out eventually that her product, um, nobody wanted to buy, nobody wanted to use. And she went way down that road before she realized she never really spent the time to really validate that people wanted what she was trying to build. So let's define validation. What is your definition of validation? Well, I think the first thing you want to do is meet with as many potential customers as possible and talk to them about the problem you're trying to solve. And first of all, validate if that problem is a problem they even care about, if it's a problem that they're willing to spend money on at the end of the day, people are only going to buy things if they if they have an acute pain that you can solve you know if you walk into somebody and say, "Oh, you know I can help you with this little thing and feel like, yeah that little thing's not on the top of my priority list, then it's gonna be really hard for them to spend money for for whatever that thing is. It's got to be something that that they really have a pain with that there's r o i for that they're willing to spend their time and money
1: on. I I agree and disagree because I don't think that the acute pain is the only buying factor. There are other things that are associated with things like convenience, and oftentimes it can also be status. Um, you know, you look at some of the social networking platforms or whatever. And the reason that some of them might even exist or find usefulness is, well, people like showing off their stuff, or they like uh, sharing that experience. And some of, you know, now, now, on, I agree with your point about the pain, like, if you can solve that part, you can win. And it's a completely different path and amount of time. If you, so if you're able to solve a problem, if you're able to help someone make more money or save more money, or, or you know, those two things are the first factors. You have a really good, uh, you know, validating, uh, validation factors to be working with. Your time that you're going to need if you're not solving a, an immediate problem and your ability to generate revenue are probably going to be a lot harder if you're not doing that. Do you agree?
0: I agree, and I, I think it also depends a lot if it's B 2 B or you know business to business software versus business to consumer, right? And so, you know, the examples I was giving before are really in re- in regards to that B 2 B kind of software, right? You know, you know who your customer is, you, you know who that person is, what their job is, can you solve a problem for them that they're willing to pay for? That's a lot different than the consumer side where you have social networks and all this stuff, like like you gave an example of. But the problem with those is. You better also know how to monetize those because they're not going to pay for anything. So the, the type of product you want to build, um, you first got to validate uh, who the customer is, how you reach those people. Are you solving a problem they care about and, and how to monetize it if it's not, if it's, if it's not something somebody's going to hand out money for?
1: I think some of the things that can be instant validation are related to, does an industry already exist where you're trying to, uh, you know, plant your flag? And we previously mentioned something about looking at an industry and if, while you want to be first, sometimes no one's there for a reason as well. You know, like there just isn't really a big market or a, you know, people that you're going to be serving well for this. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be. Um, I, When I've looked at my building a Gigabook, and I had the same path that you had. It was years and a lot of money before we collected a dollar. And I mean, literally like $1. And the reason for that was we quickly learned that what people are willing to pay for and their willingness to do so on a recurring basis Means you have to give them a lot more than you might be expecting. And, you know, for example, with Gigabook, we didn't want to make it overly complex. And that's a whole nother subject we'll get into later because we did. But we had things a little too simple and people wanted a little bit more. And the problem was, is now all of a sudden we'd put all this time and energy and we thought we were there and we really could have done a much better job of validation by actually doing stuff like just letting people into our product to use it for free even. And I and I talked to co-founders and other startup, or excuse me, I talked to startup founders and future founders a lot about this. And I think that that kind of... Your customers give you validation that's stronger than anybody else can. Like, you can't ask me if you think your idea is valid if I'm not your customer. You can, but my opinion only matters if I'm a buyer. So, some of that has a lot to do with the time that you'll be able to get your product out. But what about the expense? Like, how how much does it cost to hire a programmer? Software
0: developers are extremely expensive. Um, I mean... In the United States, they make fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars an hour, uh, depending on if it's a direct hire or a contractor or whatever. I mean, they they make a ton of money, and you know, if if you're not a, a very if if the founder and the founding team isn't very technical, I mean, you're at their mercy too, right? You're you're hiring somebody who's supposed to be the expert at creating the software, and they're just going to do whatever they're going to do, and you're just kind of at their mercy, and so that that's a huge. A risk that you take, and and that's why for a lot of a lot of startups, I always recommend it's like you need to go find that technical co-founder, and and that's what I was. I was the technical co-founder. I didn't even have the business idea. Somebody else found me, um, but I was able to help them
1: with their vision and their idea and make it happen. Now, you as one programmer can only do so much, though, and that affects the time frame as well.
0: I yep, you can only do so much, but that comes back to. The validation side of it, right? You know, before you even get programmers involved or before you have them spend an enormous amount of time, you can make mock-ups of your software and like just kind of screenshots of what it, what it will look like and kind of go meet with people and say, okay, what do you think? You know, if you could do this, this, and this, would this be valuable? Would this help solve the problem? And, you know, do as much of that as possible before you start paying all the money for the development. And, and then when you do bring the development in, yeah, absolutely. You know, are you going to have one developer or two or five or ten? They're extremely expensive. And if you can get your product idea down to something simple, and you know, if you can do that with one or two developers, that's the best thing you can do is get that simple thing that somebody will pay
1: for and then continue to grow it from there. So with that, you also have other options and things that you might need to know. And as you know, I operate an office and have for almost a decade now in Cebu City, Philippines and with that um you know a lot i think a lot of people think that they're going to offshore or find developers overseas and you know you and i in our in our daily uh interactions and for those of you that don't know uh, gigabook and stackify are located in the same building here in Kansas City so sometimes matt and i see each other more than we we might want to but with that i often we often find each other uh On the couch, the office couch, complaining or yelling our misgivings out at what it's like to be a startup founder and the problems that we run into. And sometimes they're different. And, you know, the idea that you're going to hire people that aren't near you and develop a product the way you want it uh, is rough. Like that's, I don't think that that's going to happen. We, and we can reference Laura at VideoFist. She mentioned, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but she had a couple different people build a product for her and say, here it is. And then it didn't work. And that can, you know, that's not abnormal. You really need somebody
0: on the founding team that understands software if you're going to build a software company. It's uh, other otherwise you better have a lot of money and you better find a a company that can build it for you that you really trust and you really know that comes highly highly referred and better have really detailed plans on what the software is supposed to do, how it's supposed to do it, why it's supposed to do it, all those things. Or otherwise, you're just could be throwing a lot of money out the window. So
1: let's and we're going to get into. A little more of that in the following episodes in this series. Because, you know, Matt is an expert. And I I mean, I consider what I see him do at Sacrify with his team and with his product. I often refer to Matt as operating on a genius level. It's very impressive. And I'm looking forward to what you're going to share with uh, people in this other series. Now, one of the things that I think isn't considered enough. Is competition. And let's put it this way. If it's something that can be monetized, there's probably already people doing it and a lot more than you think. Um, I think it comes back to what you said earlier. Most, uh, most ideas
0: are not unique either, right? Usually somebody else is, is already doing this. And uh, I think Gigabook and Stackify are both examples of that, right? We're not the only people that are doing this. And when we started, we probably weren't the only people that were doing this. But we were able to figure out how to do it a little differently or in a different niche or some other iteration of that. And for my current business at Stackify and my my previous business that I had, you know, part of our uh, value proposition really was that we did several things together. So you could go and buy one tool and then another tool and another tool. And really the the value that we brought was the combination of those three tools together. And that created its own unique product. But we were we were creating a product for a market that already existed. People already there was demand for it. People already used these things. We weren't we weren't creating some whole new market.
1: We were just, you know, doing things a little differently in the market. Since we're talking about things that you need to know, the thing that you do need to know that is that even if you are first, if you are the actual pioneer in it you 're going to have people on your tail immediately the moment that you that it's obvious that what you're doing is working you're going to have competitor two, three, four, and then the list grows on i I have literally stopped keeping track of my competition. Like I don't even care anymore. I, GoDaddy just became my competitor this week. They have a scheduling tool that you can build into their uh, website builder. And now that's more validation for me. I'm okay with that. We still continue to sign up hundreds of new businesses every month. Hey, we started this a long time ago and, you know, we had to have that foresight. Now with that, if you're doing some planning and thinking about what you're doing, you need to be thinking about who you're potential competition might be down the road. I honestly wish I had done a little more of that. I'm competing with mega companies and hopefully well enough that one of them will buy me. And that's part of what I'm I'm working on. I've given consideration to that fact. Now, with that, part of this whole, the thing that you need to know is this path to revenue that you have to build. And for those of you that have been keeping up with the series or read any of my books, you know I sound on some days like a parrot about that, like path to revenue, path to revenue, path to revenue, because you have to know it and you have to have a feel for it. When you're giving consideration to what you're about to do, you really need to estimate the time and resources that are needed and then double or triple it, because it's going to be a lot worse than you probably think. I think the biggest thing that I run into that people need to know is the likelihood that you're going to travel down your path to revenue and it's going to be sunshine and roses the whole way is zero. Zero, no chance that it's going to be smooth the whole way. Do you take that bet, or do you disagree?
0: I I completely agree. I mean, even with Stackify, we the problem we originally thought we were trying to solve and how we were trying to solve it, you know, we've changed considerably. Now, the first customer we got, um, you know, was actually a friend, and you know, they were paying us fifteen dollars a month, and hey, we had revenue, we had path to revenue, right? that getting the next $5,000 was a lot harder, right? So even sometimes it's, you're going to have early adopters and you could have people around you that support you, but it's crossing the chasm to the next, you know, group can, can be hard too. And so you kind of have to understand that, that path to revenue and and your go-to-market strategy and how to get there. And I talk to people all the time who, who go and build a product, they're trying to solve a problem. They understand the problem. Maybe they're solving it for themselves. They really struggle with the, how do I actually sell this thing at scale
1: to more than just myself and my friends? Yeah, and I think that's definitely something to consider. I'm looking back at Gigabook while you're talking about customer one. Our our first customer is still a Gigabook user. And we, after a year, we ended up giving this lady uh, what we called the golden ticket. We just said, you can use this for free forever. Because after we actually got her as a paying customer, We still had so many things to fix and I felt so bad that we had, she had to be so patient through these things. I just couldn't even, I was just so happy just to have someone giving us more info about that. Now, what you're kind of talking about is that, is understanding that growth. And just because you build it does not mean they're going to come. This is not field of dreams, people. You're not going to have a line of cars down the street, you know, just because you get a couple people along the way. Now, you know, the software as a service industry especially is is remarkably competitive. And, you know, you can, you know, if you're trying to stack up 10 and $20 bills at a time, uh, you got to stack up a lot of them. And the number of people that you're going to get into your platform, so let's say, you know, And we don't talk about specific performance numbers for our companies on this show, but you're going to sign up a whole lot of people and 80, 90% of them, if you're lucky, aren't going to use your product. Meaning you're going to have 5 to 10% if you do well that are probably going to sign up and actually become paying customers. I'll tell you our numbers. Sure. It's 7 to 12%. And there you go. And, you know, Gigabook's right in that ballpark. And sometimes we do things that increase that and then we try to get better and sometimes <laughs> we make it worse and it's just a whole lot of stuff going on. So, you know, we've been talking about the time and the resource. Well, another thing you need to consider too is, is advertising isn't cheap. The world is plastered with it and most people aren't paying attention to it, Almost all of it. Well, and, and advertising for us doesn't even work. It doesn't even work. Hey, actually, let's let's... Briefly talk about that, and we'll get into that in the growth strategy. I've witnessed you throughout the course of, It was January of 2017 when you and I met for breakfast and we talked about... We did the interview for Million Dollar Bedroom. And you were telling me, you know, I'm spending all this money on advertising, but I don't feel like it's working. However, I do think that marketing through content and some other grassroots methods that we can provide the input for might be the solution. And I've actually watched you, uh, what, what's your web traffic up this year 10 times? It's up 10x, yeah. We we were doing about 40,000
0: people a month on our website and now it's over 500,000 a month. And you know, I, I had a, con- a conversation with a guy yesterday and the only reason he wanted to talk was because of our blog. And he's like, hey, every morning, I drink my cup of coffee and I get a message from you guys about your blog post of the day and I read it and I'm just enamored with the content that you create, the quality of it. And I just want to talk to you. I'm just like, I'm
1: just a fan. I just love what you guys do over there. And, you know, I think the thing that's pretty cool about that is, you know, we and Gigabook finds a significant amount of signups from our blog as well. We kind of approach some of that a little differently. But I, what I love about the Stackify blog is that every article, it's not a shill. It's, it's, it's like, hey, this is some information about how we might be able to help you with what you do. And while you're here, if you want to check out our product, we would love that. But in the meantime, here's something useful that's going to make your life better, that's going to educate you, or it's going to make you better at what you do. Yeah, in in most forms of of selling
0: software and products, um, one of the best things you can do is give away something for free um, and then hope to get Business back from that, right, and so our blog is actually a lot of times it's us giving away huge amounts of knowledge for free and and we pay people as well to help write these articles and give away this free knowledge
1: these but, but best practices it started with you yeah, I still right? you literally as the CEO of the company, writing blogs and seeing what worked, and once you saw that it did work, you were able to scale that now, you know. The blog went so well, and we've been doing this podcast. You started another podcast, didn't you? I did. So there's a Stackify podcast that just launched called Developer Things.
0: And with that, what do you cover, Matt? It's all topics related to software development. So DevOps and cloud and software development best practices and interviews with people around the industry and our customers, all those sorts of things. So I'm a non-technical founder. what I benefit from listening to the shows? Uh, it might be a little a little too technical. Um, it's really targeted towards software developers. Um,
1: that's a good question. Yeah, I, I, I'm of the opinion that even if I didn't understand it, being exposed to different things can actually be useful. Like, um, you you look back at things you didn't need to know or things you need to know. Well, as a non-technical founder, you have to be able to communicate with the technical people on some level. And you know I don't write code, I don't attempt to, I really you know, on some levels don't even have an interest in doing it. But I do understand how to talk to a technical person. I do understand the basics of it. So if you're planning a startup and you're one of the things you need to know is if you're going to be a technology or software company, you need to at least get brilliant on the basics. You need to understand what kind of platform you're trying to build, meaning what kind of server is it going to be in. And I'm going to turn this over to you because this is your specialty. What are a few of the things that you think a non-technical founder needs to understand? Just a very basic checklist. Well, so to finish
0: the last thought, though, first, I I think actually the Stackify podcasts uh, would probably be good for anybody who Works or owns a software business. It's not crazy technical, but yeah, I think a lot of them would probably be topics. I'd be interesting to have you listen to more and more of them and, and give me your feedback. But so I think some of the things you need to understand um, is things like server hosting. What does that cost? Uh, where where would you host it? Um, and to, in this day and age, I would definitely recommend using Microsoft Azure or Amazon Web Services or one of those types of platforms. The last thing you want to do is uh, go buy physical servers and put them in a closet somewhere. And Azure and AWS and these providers actually do special things where they'll give you a certain amount of monthly credit for
1: free. So, you know, you get uh, it's like 100, 200 bucks a month for free. You can I, I actually that. use Rackspace and I have a specific reason for doing that. Um, some of these companies have managed plans and the ability to, you know, it, one of the mistakes I made early was thinking that a cheap server was a good thing. It is a horrible idea um, for the regards that, A, if you're paying 10 bucks a month, don't expect someone to pick up the phone when you call or care. Because um, when your site went down, probably like 3,000 others did too, and they're getting inundated with tickets. But for me, having someone... You know, we had a problem with that, with my ticket sites that that we originally had. And they were hosted at a company I won't name, and their server got hacked multiple times. And with that... Uh, an injection virus was put into our websites, which meant that it spread like they injected it into the server and it spread to all of our pages and the cleanup of it was terrible. Well, that happened once. Then twice the third time it happened, I was out and went to a uh, um, a place where I, I it was really important to me that if I had a problem, I could pick up the phone and get someone to answer it and help me. And um, I do do the companies that you mentioned offer offer that. They probably do for your account, but do they do that for a normal prosumer? Well, I think
0: it's a lot different if you're using somebody like GoDaddy or something like that for $10 a month to host your blog, right? We're talking about a more serious uh, hosting type of account. To your point, that's what you want, right? You want to have somebody that really cares about... Your stuff twenty four seven. You call them and get support, and so yeah, like Microsoft Azure, they offer phone
1: support and, and all that stuff. I think they charge just a little bit of money for it. It's yeah. not very expensive. I, mean, I pay a couple hundred bucks a month, and they you know they update the server, and I don't have to deal with that because having someone to deal specifically with that is not a level of expense that I feel that I definitely that I necessarily need or want to take on.
0: Well, when we talk about you know if the theme of this is all things to know, like these are some of the the more detailed things that you get into that you never thought about, like. I have a server now and I have people's potentially private data and I have to worry
1: about the security of that and payment card, industry compliance standards. Yeah. Other stuff. GDPR. I don't even know what that HIPAA. means. Yeah. All sorts of crap. Yeah. Just more things to know. There's a lot of regulation and there's a lot of rules and the, you know, take a look at all these massive companies that have billions of dollars in revenue that have data breaches. If they can't keep people out, you're not going to keep people out, but you got to be ready for that. I I think once or twice a week, I actually get an email from someone I've never met and don't really even want to know offering to sell me competitor data. And that's occurring because they're breaching servers and and just other poor practices. So, you got to be ready for some of that. And it's better to It's better to be prepared. It's better to have an umbrella and have it not rain than the other way around. So, we've discussed, you know, we've been discussing some of this. So, actually, I would like to hear what the rest of the list of what you think a non technical founder needs to brush up on. I think a basic understanding of basic workflow, and we're going to get into that, and you know how to plan your startup, and then really how to imp- implement it. But you have to be—I think—you have to have an understanding of how you ask a technical person to implement your plan. And the thing that I really learned is if a programmer doesn't know what something needs to do, like if they just—if you say this is how I need this to appear. No, they need to understand why, and that, and it, and having that understanding really helps a programmer build that logic that modern programming uses to execute. You know everything from the, your user experience to the way it looks or the way it reacts or all that stuff. Well, I think if you're
0: the one of the founders, the co-founders on the team, even if you're not technical, odds are you you are still the kind of product visionary and the product owner. Um, You know, this was your idea. It was your baby. You got the vision for the problem you're trying to solve. And so you still got to be very heavily involved in the software development process doesn't mean you're writing the code. But you're a key stakeholder in what work is being done, how it's being done, when it's being delivered, validating that it was done correctly before it gets to the customer.
1: Right. And that's one of the biggest challenges that people have. That's one of the challenges you've had. right? Yeah, uh, recently as well. And, you know, the thing that talking, since we're talking about things you need to know, Matt basically just told you, you might actually need someone to manage your developers. And with that, that's more resource, that's more expense. And sometimes it's more time. That's the thing I struggle with is, you know, I'm a, I'm a type A driven sales, salesy kind of guy, you know, I, I want you to, to buy it now. You know, what's taking so long? What's taking so long? What's taking so long? So with that, that's not always what people that are building your stuff want to hear. Sometimes, honestly, I think it pushes it forward. But at the same time, you know, that expectation of it, you know, what's it going to take and how are you going to it? I try to the things that I try to do are the things that keep my programmers programming. You know, having them do other stuff means they're not programming. Um, and are they any good at what you're asking them to do? As your business and your web platform grow, you're going to run into even more challenges. You know, you, you know, one of the things with Gigabook we ran into is, you know, here we are stacking Legos onto this castle we're building. And now we're having to look back at it and we're like, this needs to be a lot simpler. So sometimes you build something the way that you want it and you look at it and you're like, whoa, this is a little overwhelming. So, you know, I think that we can start heading into the last segment here and talking about having a, I think this is probably the most important part of what we're going to talk about, what we've been talking about today. And it's understanding the amount of commitment. That you're going to need and the opportunity cost that comes with it. Do you work 100 hours a week sometimes or have you? I would say I've worked 50 or 60 hours a week forever. Yeah, that's to me, a 60 hour week would feel good. I I find myself in, well, it depends. You should read a book called Balance Me. Oh, wow. Yeah, I wrote it. And, you know, it's really funny because that's on the surface a book about life balance. But the first thing I tell you is good luck. It's almost impossible. And if you own a business, it's even harder. So here's the thing is when you're starting something new, you don't have any protocol. You don't have an instruction manual. You have to figure out so many things. There's so many. And that's another part of planning that all these one-time expenses, these one-time instances, and it's nearly impossible to do that. I actually... Earlier this year, invested in a company that moves fitness equipment, and I was amazed looking back at it that I got almost all of the stuff that I needed to estimate that we needed right. So, ten years of experience, I finally got it right on one. I missed a couple little things, but they were minor. And I know that's not related to software, but you know the, the you know going back to the whole time commitment. <laughs> It can be intense. And if you think it's going to happen between 9 and 5, well, that's not the way it works. Murphy and his laws definitely rule when it comes to the world of startups, in my opinion. If something's going to break, it seems to do it on the weekend. It seems to do it in the middle of the night or something like that. And, And those are the things that If you're now picking up some traction, you know, we've got all these people that use Gigabuck to manage their business. If something breaks, we have a responsibility, and especially if we want to keep them as users, to addressing these issues and doing it quickly. And that requires sometimes, you know, right now, if you guys could see me, I've got black circles under my eyes. I've been up working until 3 a.m. because I needed to have a more hands-on approach with people that work for our company that are in different time zones. And so with that, it's it's challenging. And some of that I'm able to structure the rest of my life. Like people think it's crazy because my daughter goes to bed at 10 o'clock. Well, that's because I can have a better chance of seeing her between like 6:30 and that time. So we let her sleep a little later. And that's what works a little better for me. Because for example, I with an office in the Philippines, that's almost a 12-hour time difference. So when I'm getting home, I need to get them started sometimes. And you know with that that commitment and then another thing too is the financial commitment and if you don't have deep pockets, it's gonna put a strain on what you're doing and you know it can it can be it can be a challenge and you well, know, I,
0: I think I've heard before that most startup founders make thirty percent of the amount of money they were making before or in a lot of times zero right like or you're you're working part time like my first company I was working part time doing at my uh I was a software developer at a medical laboratory and I was, uh, doing that basically 30 hours a week. And I was working another 40 hours a week doing this. So I, you know, had a little bit of income, but I had less income. And then even when we started making money at, at, in the business, we started getting traction. I was, I was not making, you know, market rate. I was making less way less than that. And so you, you have to, you have to be all in and make that commitment. And you're going to take, you, you got to be financially ready for it.
1: What's the point. total amount of wages that you have received from stack of since inception? It's been six years, and the number is zero. Uh, I am also at zero with GigaBook. I have never I've, i I pay money to work at my business, as do you. Yep. On paper, it's worth money. Yeah, that and that's that's something that we're going to get into later in this series is trying to figure out what these things are worth, and with that, who you're going to sell them to. Now, so, there, so there's one more thing I think we
0: need to talk about in commitment. I think most people that are really entrepreneurs are Really driven at building whatever it is they're they're trying to build, and I, I think you mentioned it earlier. It's like it's a it's kind of a passion inside of you that is on twenty four hours a day. And like I went and had lunch with my team today, and I showed up with my laptop, and I'm sitting here <laughs> I'm sitting here on my laptop with the team, and they're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Going through email. I got stuff to do," and it just it never ends. And um, I like to tell people the internet never closes. And, and back to your, your point that you wrote a book about this, right? It's that, that life balance is tough. And, but to be successful, a lot of times that's what you got to do. You get, you're all in and you are, you know, working
1: and thinking about this 24 hours a day. In that book, the, the main thesis of it and the biggest suggestion that I give is that you have to understand when and where you're consistently engaging in low value activity. And low value activity is simply defined by things that don't move you towards your goals. It doesn't mean business goals, it means life goals. I can be personal, professional, or physical. Like, you know, I, I legitimately went into the other room and told my wife last night I'm sorry that I have been, that I've been so busy. I'm hoping to see my family this weekend. And, you know, that that's a sad reality of some of it. And for me, I just had some things that were very pressing with what we're doing. Now, I'm coming into the weekend. We're actually recording this on a Friday afternoon. I'm coming into the weekend knowing that I'm going to get a day tomorrow. And I'm jumping right back on it on Sunday because that's what I got to do to keep momentum going. Now, one of the things that I've heard in the past is people like to compare me to the guy that spins plates on the end of a pole. And you know, here you are. Well, you, I think it's true because I'm constantly running, you know, you spin another plate, another one's wobbling, you have to go spin it. And, you know, both being people that are involved in different enterprises past the one that we do that's a primary, that's a big thing for me. And sometimes I have, you know, you have to put out a fire before it gets so big that it's now starting other individual fires around it. And that's, you know, always my particular Thing that I'm dealing with. Um, so you're you know, doing a lot of hustling is what you're saying. Uh, it's, yes. From one problem to the next. That is an understatement, but it's what needs to occur for me to find success. And I know that. And, and that's the thing is, you know, sometimes as well, you're going to find yourself disappointed in the people that you think are there to help you in their commitment level. You can have talent or you can not have talent. You can't always control that. The one thing you can control is your own output and your effort and your attitude and how you approach things. And if you're going to start a business, not even a, like a tech startup, but just a business, you're going to have a huge time commitment up front and it's going to create opportunity cost, which means you're going to miss out on other opportunities for things going in and around your life and be prepared for that. And maybe even talk to the people that are around you you know, if you're married or in a relationship or whatever it is, or, you know, whatever the things are that currently occupy a lot of your time, consider that you might not be able to engage in those the way that you have. Like my wife and I have a, and your wife, our wives are very understanding. They have had a long time to adjust to, this is kind of the way these guys are. And with that, if I didn't have the kind of support that I have at home, I think the rest of it might fall apart quickly. So I think that, you know, also considering what kind of other support and understanding you have around you is a pretty big deal as well.
0: Well, and some people may have commitments with their church or their family or elderly people in their family they got to take care of. Or, I mean, there's a million different things that people could have in their life that they have
1: to spend a lot of time on. Children. Their kids. Yeah. You can't be late to pick up your kid at school. You don't want your kid being that kid. And where are you? You know, like these are things that you have to really take into consideration and right. how they're going to affect other things. And, and it's something you always have to be thinking about the balance of. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and end today's episode. Hopefully we didn't freak you guys out. For those of you that we did, we are either sorry or you're welcome, whichever, whichever applies. Um, yeah, thanks, everybody.